Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to get right to work. If you open up to Mark chapter 7, we are going to begin reading uh, in verse 24 all the way to the end, which I believe is verse 37. So Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. This is what God's Word says. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him, came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. And then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looked up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Apaphatha, what that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's Word. So in our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark, we've titled it Reintroducing Jesus. And I've learned that to some, Jesus is obviously quite foreign. But I think for others, he may almost be too familiar. You see, most people have an image of Jesus in their mind when they say Jesus or think about Jesus. And that image is typically created by the tribes that you grew up in or around and certainly the voices that you've most listened to over the course of your lives. And if you remember the flannel graph, right, the the flannel graph, Jesus, the flat, one-dimensional Jesus, I think many of these images in our minds are one-dimensional, and they're one-dimensional images that have been shaped often by some of these personal experiences, uh, even some of our personal passions or our, our, our pet causes. We have an image of Jesus. For some, Jesus is a meek servant. For others, Jesus is a bold activist. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is a marginalized reformer. Jesus is a rebellious martyr. Jesus is a liberal hippie. Jesus is pro-woman. Jesus is anti-establishment. And the list goes on. And sometimes these images are biblical. But I think often many are not, and most of them in their flat phanograph style provide a picture that is so superficial they actually fail to reveal Jesus as a real multidimensional person. 
The Gospel of Mark, I think, offers a more complete, complex, and really genuine portrayal of Jesus, even if at times that portrayal makes us kind of uncomfortable, which a portrayal of a person likely will and should make you uncomfortable in some way. People are complex. People are strange. People are offensive. People are different. So that is the case here in Mark chapter 7, particularly verses 24 to 30. At the very least, the portrayal of Jesus here feels a bit awkward, a bit strange. It can even feel a little offensive if we read it carefully, which I think often we don't. Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus be compassionate. We've seen Jesus be confrontational. We've seen Jesus be prayerful. We've seen Jesus be very powerful. And I think most of what we've read up to this point has probably worked with most of the images that most of us have in our minds. We can make it work with that one-dimensional picture. But in this text, I think we are reintroduced to a Jesus that is not often talked or sung about in Sunday school. A Jesus who on the surface seems to sound rude, cold, maybe even racist. It almost feels like in this passage, Christ is not Christ-like in the way we expect perhaps Him to be. Now, easily misunderstood, I think we are left to wonder at least this. Why would Mark even include this passage? Because... It seems to stir up some discomfort. And knowing that Mark wasn't an eyewitness and that actually this is likely the memoir of Peter, perhaps the question is, why did Peter feel it important to put this particular story in here? We'll we'll address that in a bit. But if we can just push through, and I know I read the text pretty quickly, but we'll work through it. If we can push through some of the maybe initial shock, if I can call it that, of Jesus and his words, I'm confident we'll see this passage is much less about anything like racism and much more just about grace. Let's take a look. It's important, as always, to understand the context of this particular story. As we've been going through Mark, and particularly Mark chapter 7, we know that Jesus just dined with a bunch of Pharisees He was also with his disciples, and these Pharisees were troubled that his disciples were not following the hand-washing practices or traditions of the elders. And so, concerned with being kind of ceremonially clean, the Pharisee has established a, a pretty suffocating set of rules to maintain their purity and to set themselves apart from those that the law, or at least they themselves, deemed as unclean. Now, this practice was part of a larger system which fostered a lot of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Now, Jesus addresses that, and he says that, you know, whatever goes into your body is not what makes you unclean, it's what comes out of the heart that's actually the problem. So he deals with the Pharisees, and then the next thing Jesus does, it seems, is to make a point to head into what we'll just call the Middle Eastern version of the Pacific Northwest. And I say that particularly, um, it could best be described of where he's going as like pagan land. 
He goes deep into Gentile territory, into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, historically, these particular cities, which would be in the area of like Lebanon today, uh, historically, these particular cities uh, were basically connected with false worship. Biblically, at one point, Satan is symbolically identified as the king of Tyre by the prophets. In Matthew chapter 11, these are the two cities that Jesus actually uses as examples of wicked, unrepentant cities. So upon his arrival in this place, Jesus is confronted with what the apostle Matthew describes as a Canaanite woman, one of the people that Israel were commanded to utterly destroy when they fought to possess the promised land, the Canaanites. Now, the people of Israel failed to expunge the Canaanites completely from the land. You can read this in the book of Joshua. And so as a result, Israel had tensions with the Canaanite people throughout their entire history. And it wasn't just that they had wars and conflict. What it was is actually they fought, in large part, their fleshly attraction to this culture, a culture that was incredibly sexually immoral, a a culture that was genocidal at times, a, a culture that was incredibly opulent and just pagan. They struggled to not go after their gods and to intermarry with their people and just to be part of that culture. Now, Mark further identifies this woman as a Gentile and more specifically as a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, many of the Canaanite survivors of the Israelite conquest actually moved north into Phoenicia. So Mark indirectly calls her a Canaanite, but he begins by describing her as a Gentile. And so what you see is the place Jesus is at, like if salvation comes from doing, as the Pharisees seem to believe that it's about how you keep yourself pure, how you keep yourself clean, how you obey perfectly, then the place where Jesus goes is where everyone is doing the wrong thing and everyone is as dirty as you can possibly get. So it's noteworthy that Jesus, after speaking with these Pharisees about what is clean and unclean, actually withdraws from the Jewish world, withdraws from what would be described perhaps as the world of religion or faith, the world of clean, and he goes deep into the pagan world, the world of idolatry and the world of dirty. And there, in the most unlikely, the most irreligious, the most uh, spiritually unsanitary of places, is where Christ shows grace. And he actually spends a lot of time in these places. He's often in Gentile territory in these places, and some of his greatest miracles and his greatest moments of compassion are to those who are not of the clean people. So upon his arrival, Jesus, it says, is kind of hiding away. He doesn't want to be seen. Perhaps he wants to rest and get the rest that he is unable to have gotten since feeding or before the 5,000. But you have this unclean Gentile woman, this enemy of the Jews, the sinner of sinner, and really a hurting mom with a possessed daughter finds him and interrupts whatever he is doing. I find that nothing compels a man or a woman to interrupt and to do whatever they can to cry out to the Lord than when you have a suffering child. When you feel totally helpless. It's likely 
Um, this woman sees that she has a problem she cannot fix. Her daughter is demon-possessed. The gods of her own culture have not helped. I'm sure anyone else, whatever power she could find in that territory, have not helped. She has exhausted every effort, and she hears that Jesus is nearby, and she comes to him. She falls down at Jesus' feet, cries out for help. And again, a noteworthy contrast to what she or Jesus has already experienced with the Pharisees. A completely different disposition than the religious Pharisees who have been given everything. They have been given all the scriptures they need to identify the Messiah. They have seen Jesus heal and, and teach and all these things. And yet, their disposition couldn't be any more different than this woman. The Pharisees often come with accusations and ask questions, and this irreligious pagan comes and just asks for mercy. Now, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 15 records this same story, and it makes Jesus a little more disturbing. It gives us a little more insight into what was happening this woman comes and falls before Jesus' feet, and despite her uncontrolled, like it's not just she cries out, help me, it's like perpetual. She's wailing and crying and getting louder and crying, and Jesus in response does nothing. In fact, in Matthew 15, it indicates that he is just silent, implying that he's not even really looking at her. That makes does that not make us a little uncomfortable? A woman crying for help for her child and begging for mercy and Jesus just silent. We don't like silences. We interpret silences usually quite negatively. We don't like it when people are silent. Silence is deafening. Silence is a negative. Silence is you're guilty of something. And when the Lord is silent, that is even more troubling. And so in his silence, right, it just increases her plea. She gets louder and louder to the point where the disciples are like, Jesus, just send her away. And the implication is hard to understand is that the disciples asking like, will you just help her so she can go? Or is it just, just tell her to get out of here? It's not sure what the disciples really desire, but Jesus is still not saying anything. So once the disciples ask if Jesus would deal with her, he says to them, not even to her yet, right? But what he will say to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This sounds pretty cold, at least on the surface. But perhaps it's just a little more complex than we first read. See, the mission of God was always designed to go through Israel in order to bless the world. In the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, we read about a man named Abraham, right? And Abraham is given a promise. He is a childless Abraham that is going to be made, in God's words, a great nation. That God is going to bless him with a great name. And then he says, so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
Fast forward to Revelation chapter 7. The Apostle John sees a vision and he foresees the culmination of this promise Abraham was given in heaven. And he describes it this way. He says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So you got Genesis chapter 12, this promise given to this man is going to become a great nation and bless the whole world. And then you have Revelation 7 where the whole world is standing before the throne and before Jesus. And then you have Mark in the middle. You see, Jesus is unapologetic about the primary purpose of his mission from God. Israel is his priority. Not because they're special, not because they're an awesome people. God tells the people in Deuteronomy, like, you are nothing special. I just have chosen to love you. But Israel was chosen to be loved that salvation may come to everyone. Israel was a priority not only for the sake of the Jewish nation, but for the sake of the entire Gentile world that included all kinds of nations, every other nation. This is why Paul can write in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel that began with this separation. The gospel that said I'm choosing these people and this Jewish people from whom will come a Jewish king and he will die for these people and it will bless the whole world. He says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not everyone who is Jewish. Not everyone who is ceremonial clean. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's an order to things. You see, no one wants to be ignored by Jesus, especially in their moment of need. And we must remember that He hears, He sees, He knows, and yet He doesn't always speak. Not in the way we want. He doesn't always act in the way we want. But that doesn't mean He's not speaking or that He's not acting. It means that His perhaps temporary silence or His, dare I say, not yet. His not yet means still a promise of a future blessing. That there's a future blessing coming. Well, he doesn't ignore this woman for long, but again, his response to her makes it feel worse. As if he almost insults her, at least on the surface. In Mark, he tells this woman... Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, imagine your pastor, your teacher saying that and hearing that. Oh my gosh. Now, in that context, the children are Israel, right? The dogs are everybody else, every other nation, every other people. And so it seems like, yes, Jesus is referring to this woman as a dog in that sense. Now, there are two different kinds of dogs that are referred to in the New Testament. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, 
don't give to dogs what is holy. And in that, he is saying a very derogatory thing to describe who are bad, who are perverted, the, the evil people who basically reject God's truth. But here, the word is used differently. The word for dog here is, is household watchdogs. So the Jews didn't keep dogs. The Jews viewed dogs like dirty rats. If you have ever gone on a mission trip to Tijuana, Mexico, remember when I was younger, went to Tijuana, and there's dogs everywhere. And none of them look like pets. They barely look like dogs. And I was told by those who were leading the trip, look, you see that mangy dog? They literally have something called mange. Don't pet the dogs unless you want to look like the dogs. And so no one touched the dogs. And there were scavengers all over the place. No one fed the dogs. We stayed away from the dogs. That's how the Jews viewed dogs. I referenced that this place was like the Middle Eastern Pacific Northwest. Dogs are important in this culture. I believe it's been said there are more dogs in the Seattle area than there are kids. Maybe it's more like this than we think. But in this Gentile world that Jesus is speaking in, they view dogs very differently. Though less than children, household dogs were fed, and they were cared for. They may have not clothed them. Still don't understand that. They may have not primped them. and Maybe didn't carry them around in bags or purses, but they loved them. The issue is simply this. The children do get fed first. And the woman, in hearing this, doesn't despair at what Jesus says. He doesn't like, oh, okay, never mind, and walk away. Actually, she persists. And she answers him, yes. Not just yes, yes, Lord. And I believe this is the only place in the Gospel, Mark, where Jesus is actually addressed as Lord by a person. It's not a disciple. It's not a Pharisee. It's not even part of a Jewish crowd. It's some dirty pagan Gentile The book of Mark, you see, is a 16-chapter answer to the question, who is Jesus, written for Romans who are at this time killing Christians. And so it's noteworthy as you read that the only people who actually rightly identified Jesus as Lord and Son of God in the Gospel of Mark are a pagan mom and a Roman soldier. There's a message and an intention behind what Mark is writing. And it's written to the Gentile world. This woman knows who Jesus is, and she actually knows that he knows who she is as a Gentile. So she doesn't argue Jesus' point. She doesn't demand an apology. She, she doesn't file a defamation lawsuit. She doesn't go on social media and shame the guy that spoke to her. Without a hint of angst or anger, she agrees with him, and she adds this. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
she agrees that the children get fed first, but that in her culture, the dogs also get fed. And the dog isn't outside. The dog is in the house. She pretty much says, look, I may not be of the house, Jesus, but I am still in the house. She doesn't dismiss the reality of her doggedness, for lack of a better phrase. The condition of who she is and her uncleanness. She simply asks for a scrap of help. She doesn't demand a feast, which I think the Pharisees are opt to do, regardless of how much they've already been given. She is satisfied with a crumb because she believes this. And I question and wonder how we believe in this regard. She believes that even a crumb of Jesus' grace has the power to heal her possessed daughter. I don't need a feast. I don't need everything. I just need a crumb because I know that's how powerful your grace and love is, Jesus. It reminds me of a verse in Psalm 37, which I've sat on many times. Verse 16, it just says, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Better is the little. Better is the little. Well, Jesus is moved by her words, not by her great wit, but by her great faith. And he says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And like many of the stories in the Bible, I think we tend to focus on the people in the story so that we might follow their example. We do this in the Old Testament all the time, believing we're David, throwing stones at whatever our Goliath is or whatever the story is. But I think sometimes as we read these stories, we actually miss what God is teaching us about himself in Jesus. We look at the woman and say, oh, I must have great faith, and then Jesus will help me. And I would argue that Mark focuses instead on the person of Jesus, even by leaving out a lot of the words that Matthew includes. He focuses on the person of Jesus, his initial reluctance, and then his eventual response. And the lesson is not that Jesus responds to great faith. He does. But perhaps more radical than that, that Jesus shows grace to the not so great. That Jesus shows grace to those we least expect to. Jesus shows grace to those we believe are the least deserving because we all have our list of unclean. Earlier I'd asked why Mark would have even included this story, or better, why Peter would have wanted Mark to include this story. And it's important to understand this, that for the first 15 years-ish of the early church, the majority of converts to Christianity were Jewish. Rome viewed Christianity as a Jewish sect. The disciples were Jewish, Jesus was Jewish, and most of the people who believed were Jewish. Not all, but the majority for sure. At what point, at one point during his ministry on earth, Jesus had actually plainly told his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles and only go to the lost sheep of Israel. And then sometime after his resurrection, Jesus saved a man named Saul, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews. The guy was like as Jewish as you could get. 
And when he began his ministry, he was a powerful evangelist and church planter. He made a practice of first going into the Jewish synagogues and to convince and reason from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah that had been waiting for. And he was often opposed and reviled and kicked out of the synagogue, but a church was often planted. Finally, after being kicked out enough and rejected enough, he actually said to the Jewish people, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I am going to the Gentiles. And that's what he did. And what happened is non-Jews started to come to faith and be saved by Jesus. The largely Jewish church began to be confused. There began to be some tension. What's going on here? Peter was one of the leaders of the church, and he was actually one that struggled most greatly with it, even to the point where he was confronted by Paul for stepping away from Gentiles and eating with Jews. Not only did God have to give Peter a miraculous vision, the Holy Spirit had to direct him to a house where he personally led a Roman centurion and his family to faith. So eventually the apostles got together, including Paul and Peter, and they're debating about whether or not Jesus is truly saving anyone, Jew and Gentile. And if Gentiles, if they were able to be saved, did they have to become Jewish in order to be saved? They have to practice Jewish things and keep up on all the cultural routines that they had established. And after much debate about it, in Acts 15, you can read, Peter stands up and says, here's the verdict. Referencing his own experience, he says this, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And he's talking about his experience. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, here's this word, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Not by doing something, but by believing someone, believing that Jesus had died on the cross for their sins, believing that Jesus had rose from the dead and gave them his righteousness. They were believing by faith. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the death by placing yoke on the neck of the disciples, making them obey some new Jewish things or additional Jewish rules? That neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Did you catch that? We ourselves tried to follow him, guys. We couldn't do it either. Which means we have come to believe and be saved by faith. And he ends with verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they, all Gentiles, will. This is why Peter wanted this included. You can see Jesus' purpose unfolding that everyone can be saved and everyone or anyone who is saved is not saved by position or by purity or by pedigree or what you do or know, but you are saved by the grace of Jesus and even those who we view as unclean. We are saved by grace through faith. 
Now, in the strangest ways, the final verses of chapter 7 actually emphasize this truth, and you wouldn't think that. But after his interaction with this hurting mother, Jesus returns to the region. He goes into, away from Gentile territory, still in Gentile territory. And he encounters a man who is deaf and mute, or at least he has a really bad stutter. It's hard to know what is meant. And people bring him to Jesus and they say, please, would you heal this man? And so Jesus takes him aside privately and personally and he heals him. And the fact that he heals him isn't as important as how he heals him. Because the first thing he do is he touches the man's ears, right? Even though the man cannot hear, we see Jesus speaking, into, speaking to him in a way that he understands. I'm going to heal your ears, right? And the second thing he does is he sighs, which is kind of a strange statement. He's like, and it makes me like, oh, bother. But that's not it, right? He's not expressing frustration. He's actually expressing empathy and sorrow for this man who cannot hear. And then finally he speaks words. He says, be opened. And he speaks it in Aramaic, which is a strange thing I won't go too far into. But Aramaic was really the common tongue. It became the common tongue actually through the Babylonian captivity where Aramaic became more popular than Hebrew. And so in many ways it's the language of captivity, the language of slavery. And in many ways he's speaking freedom to this man. So he's in Gentile territory. He's not just opening this one man's ears. He's showing us a picture of what it means to open the ears of an entire region. And more than once throughout Mark, Jesus has said this, He who has ears, let him hear. Well, this man's got ears. Oh, but he's deaf. We know that faith comes by hearing, but there have been so many people who have heard Jesus up to this point. Thousands of people. Thousands of people have heard him. Disciples, Pharisees, crowds, and guess what? The majority of them do not believe. They all have ears. They've all heard. Why haven't they believed if they've heard, if faith comes by hearing? Because simply it's not enough just to have ears. You have to have ears that hear. If you don't have ears that hear, which is not in our power, then you're just like the deaf man. Or someone you're speaking to is just like the deaf man. It's only with the touch of Jesus. It's only by the grace of Jesus. It's only through the word of Jesus that ears are open to hear the voice of Jesus and respond. When this man begins to speak, Mark says that everyone's astonished beyond measure. They're just like, oh, they're just shocked and excited. They can't stop talking about it. They're getting really loud about it. And again, surprisingly, right, you got Jesus who's been silent. Jesus sounds like he's been insulting. And now he's like, shut up, be quiet. He's surprising us because the louder they proclaim, the more he tells them to be quiet. You're like, why? Why, why is he telling them to be quiet? And so it's simply this. He had yet to go to the cross. Right after feeding the 5,000, 
in John 6, we see like they want to make him king. Jesus' mission is to go to the cross. See, if you step back a second, I think all of us want to get to what's past the cross. All of us want to get to the resurrection. All of us want to get to the restoration. All of us want to get to the comfort and the joy and the, all the good things. But neither resurrection nor restoration can take place without crucifixion. Grace without the cross is just a sentimental kindness. It is empty of true power. It is meaningless in many ways. We are not made clean just because like we do things. We are made clean because someone became dirty for us. We are unified because someone was separated cosmically from God for us. We are healed because someone was beaten and killed in our place. Restoration begins not simply through preaching Jesus meek and mild and compassionate and nice and kind and miraculous, but through the compassionate preaching of Jesus crucified. And what begins with our ears, like if you believe that Jesus really died on the cross for your sins and that He really rose from the dead, you have ears to hear. And you have eyes to see. And you have a mouth to speak. What that means is, I am not the only preacher here. Or I ought not be. We're all preachers. We're all to preach the cross We are all to declare Christ crucified with our mouths and with our lives. And what does that even mean? Well, to preach Jesus crucified means we preach repentance. We talk about sin. We tell people to stop going the direction that God did not call you to go. You are walking away from your Savior. You are going in a way that is contrary to how you were designed. It is not for joy. It is not for good. It is for death. So we preach repentance. To preach Jesus crucified means we preach forgiveness. There's nothing you can do that Jesus cannot forgive. To preach Jesus crucified means we preach justice. We say sin is wrong, sin is evil. It's so bad, yes, the smallest of sin, it required the death of the Son of God. To preach Jesus crucified means we also preach mercy. To preach Jesus crucified means we preach reconciliation. We don't come together because we're all the same. We don't come together because we we like the same things, think the same things. We come together because we serve the same Savior who saved us from the same sin by the same grace. And we preach Jesus crucified means we preach unity. But more than anything, to preach Jesus crucified means we preach undeserved, unearned, Radical, unjustifiable love. This thing called grace. And if you preach anything else, if you preach anything else that says, oh, well, you can believe Jesus and you also need to do this. You can believe Jesus, but you also must say this, do this, think this. You are preaching another gospel by another spirit 
about a totally different Jesus. Let us be a people known for preaching Christ and Him crucified because that means Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, and Christ's return. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the grace that You have shown us through Your Son, Jesus. Lord, You chose the Jewish people to come through to establish Your law, to establish Your ways, and to make a way for us Gentiles to experience Your love. Thank You for the promise You gave to Abraham. Thank You that we are saved by faith. Thank you for the grace, Lord, to believe. Thank you for the grace that you give us to open our ears to hear and eyes to see. Would you continue to do that for us? Would you make us a people that is known for preaching Jesus crucified? Yes, Jesus compassionate. Yes, Jesus confrontational. But most of all, Jesus crucified. Thank you for your grace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.